Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Unstoppable. I'm your host, Kerwin Ray, and today we take performance to a whole nother level. We actually sit down with one of my early mentors in life, Dr. John D. Martini. Now, for those of you who don't have been living under a rock, you don't know who Dr. John is. He was actually one of the key people featured on The Secret, but he also played a massive role in my life and has been one of the reasons I am who I am today based on the technologies and the information he exposed me to. John is one of the world's most renowned and respected researchers when it comes to human behavior and how it translates into performance. He's one of the forefathers of human potential and he embodies everything that Unstoppable stands for. So buckle up, Dorothy, because Kansas is about to go bye-bye as we get down deep and a little bit psychedelic with the one, the only, Dr. John Medea Martini. Listen up. But ladies and gentlemen, it is my absolute honor and pleasure today to welcome to Unstoppable. We have the one, the only, John D. Martini. John, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. John, mate, most people know you from your success in The Secret. Uh, they know you from your success as one of the most, you know, the forefathers of the human potential movement. But it hasn't always been the case of you traveling the world on the world, one of the world's most private and luxurious uh, ocean liners. Uh, there's a Genesis story here that is really quite intriguing and unique that would, in many cases, give a lot of people a lot of hope. So where did it all begin? I guess the best way to say is that when I was 17 years old, I had the opportunity to meet a gentleman named Paul C. Bragg, who was lecturing at a sunset recreation hall on the north shore of Oahu, where I was living there, surfing. And I was a high school dropout living in a tent at the time and um, had dropped out of school. I had learning problems. And one night, this one man, literally in one hour, with one message, got to me. I was at the right place at the right team to meet the right teacher, I guess. And he inspired me that night to believe that I could someday become intelligent and that I'd be able to read and to overcome my learning problems. And that night I had a dream, a vision. I, I, I don't know else to describe it other than a real lucid vision of me speaking and traveling the world. Wow. And uh, so I set out to do that. I, I, I spent a few weeks with him, studying each morning with him, learning what I could from him. And he said that we have a body, we have a mind, and we have a soul. The body must be directed by the mind and mind must be directed by the soul in order to maximize human potential and to be unstoppable, in a sense. And I uh, started doing the things he taught me. I started to take command of what I thought, what I saw, what I thought, you know, felt about myself, talked to myself. He gave me a little affirmation, and I told him I had learning problems. He said, say to yourself every single day that I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom. I've never missed a day in all these years. That's been almost 47 years now. Wow. And. Um, I just never gave up on my dream. I just, I, I, I think if you stay with something long enough, everybody else dies out and you end up at the top. <laughs> you just gotta stay with it. And I just have, once I learned that I could read, and once I overcame that, uh, that was one of the most invigorating, inspiring aspects of my life is to learn. I still read a lot today. And um, I try to share whatever I learn with other people. I try to fill my mind with the greatest teachings I can get from around the world, from the greatest minds and try to then disseminate that information as best I can around the world. One of the things that strikes me about um, your journey is, and I've never heard this actually described in this way before, is your pursuit of the ologies, your pursuit of anthropology, <coughs> psychology, uh, and all the all the studies of of knowledge. And because I know most people would know you're, you're, you're a doctor, 
You're a chiropractic doctor. So that was your, was that your first body of study, was studying the body? Well, I, I started out because I had a health issue. Right. And I started out wanting to devour everything I could on physiology and every aspect of health. But when I was about 18 years old, um, I was introduced to an idea called a universal law. And I wanted to look up what a universal law was. And it took us all the way back, took me back to the Greeks, where they talked about the logos. And then I realized that that was the order or the reason of the universe, and uh, the intelligence of the universe, you might say, the laws. And then what I did is I divided logos into the ologies. And so I made a list of every known ology at the time. And um, I made a commitment to try to read at least 100 books, at least 100 books in each ology to uncover the most universal principles, the most general laws I could get to build a foundation of knowledge that I could rest on, that I could share with somebody that wouldn't be changing, it would be classical, it would be a foundation that could build a, a magnificent life by. So that's what led me to wanting to study so many different disciplines, which is 299 of them now. Wow. And uh, that led me to read now over 30,250 books. Wow. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a avid reader. And I, whenever I'm not, do you have speaking, like a checklist? Like you, because you, you obviously counting how many books that you read. So. I, I metric everything. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm neurotic about it. <laughs> I'm, you know, I, when I said that I wanted to reach every country, I keep a record of every country I've been in. I've been 150 countries now. Every city I get to speak in, which is 2,031 cities now, I keep record of everything because I, if you really are wanting to accomplish something. A metric lets you know how to refine your actions to pursue it and to achieve it. So I keep records of the things to make sure that I'm really on track or I can use that as feedback to, to find out what I can do to make it more effective. So I keep records of things because I, just for my own, mm. I don't share those records with everybody, but I just do it for myself just so I know that, that I'm on track and that I'm accomplishing what I set out to do because if, if it's a fantasy that I'm pursuing, I'll know by my efforts and my outcomes. Mm. And if it's something truly objective, that I'll see it in the in the results. Yeah, right. And so, one of the things that I find fascinating about what you do, you have studied 299 ologies, and you've been able to distill the the classical uh, tune of the universe, the the universal principles. And if you were to distill the universal principles that you've discovered from such an enormous amount of study and research, what would what would it be? What would be the fundamental universal law that you've discovered? <clears throat> well, the most universal law out of all the studies that I've come across is actually the law of the one and the many. <laughs> oh, I like this. And uh, I'll, I'll give you some analogies. Yeah, right. Uh, gravitation is a radial attractive force from infinite many into one over infinity space, a singularity. Right. So that's from many to one. But at the same time, radiation, which is its inversion, is going from point source out into infinite radii, yeah. one to many. So gravitation and radiation, which are two very important forces of the universe, are involved in that. Just like the strong nuclear force is attractive, it's gluons that are holding the quarks together, and uh, the weak nuclear force is actually a separation of electrons or positrons from the nucleus. So one is attractive and repulsive again, towards or away. When you are um, looking for a relationship and you're dating many people, you're looking for the special one. 
But once you get the one, you're wondering about the many. <laughs> so the law of the one to many. So I'm just a particle. Show, shows, shows itself in every discipline mm. so far that I've studied. Chemistry is attractive or repulsive. It's, um, it's nucleophilic or it's electrophilic. And you have um, every discipline follows that law, whether it be mathematical, integration, or differentiation, or whether it be social, political, where it's monarchies and democracies, or whether you have anthropology, where you have the out of Africa uh, hypothesis versus the multi-regional hypothesis. That is, in every discipline that I've studied, the law of the one and many is the most universal principles. That's moving what I call towards the synthesis and synchronicity of complementary opposites, as Heraclitus described, uh, moving towards oneness, or the separateness, the synthesis going into the diathesis and diachronicity of opposites. So these these two mechanisms, Parmenides describe it as the, the law of love versus strife, or the law of unity versus diversity. But that law is applied, and it can be applied to everything. We have one essence of soul and many personas that we mm. play. And our job is to integrate the personas into oneness so we can have the biggest influence on the manyness. So this, this law, I've yet to see violated. It shows up in quantity, quality. It shows up in similars and differences. It shows up in every discipline. So that is the most universal law so far. The synthesis and synchronicity of opposites, which is love, to the diachronicity and diathesis of opposites, which is uh, judgment. Right. And how would you use that in a way that is practical for human performance? Because that is a, is a pretty, that's a pretty incredibly deep exp- explanation that some people will be sitting there going, what the fuck did he just say? <laughs> <laughs> well, and there'll be like a, a small percentage of people who understand and it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's like a symphony of uh, an orchestra of intelligence. But when you look at it from the practical aspects of a, okay, I'm a carpenter or I'm a, I'm a, I'm a mum or I'm a, I'm just an entrepreneur just trying to make my way. How do we use that in a practical way for human performance, for better performance, for better quality of life? Ah, well, that led to my development of uh, what I call the Martini method. So let's say you're walking down the street and you meet somebody and you look up to them and you admire them and um, you're attracted to them and you're too humble to admit what you see in them is inside you. You assume they have something you don't. You disown what you see in them, you deflect it, um, and you, in a sense, dismember it from your mind. In the process of doing that, you um, put them on a pedestal, you put yourself in a pit, you exaggerate them towards an expansion, and you minimize yourself towards a contraction. Expansion, contraction, radius versus gravitas. Then what happens is you can also meet somebody that you can look at and you can despise and resent. And you're too proud to admit what you see in them is inside you. And now you put them down and shrink them and expand you with pride. Those two lead to an inequity of perception. The moment you do, anything that you infatuate with or resent or put above you or below you automatically occupies space and time in your mind and runs you. So your mind has noise in it because what you've done is when you're infatuated, you're conscious of the upsides, but you're unconscious of the downsides. When you're resentful, you're conscious of the downsides, you're unconscious of the upsides. The moment you have a conscious and unconscious split, you divide your mind from one to many and disempower yourself. The personas. You put your personas on, which are masks, pride mask or shame mask. This isn't you, this is the false you, the facades that you cover your body and mind with. The moment you do that, you disempower yourself because you're disowning parts of that. 
the truth is you have everything. You're both hero and villain. You're both saint and sinner. You have both vice and virtue. So putting people up or down instead of putting them in your heart is a disempowering act. So judgment disempowers us and allows us to get to the Peter principle of incompetency of managing our perceptions and actions in life. So by using the law of the one to many, you're going in there and you're owning the parts, whatever you perceive in them. I ask people, go to a moment where and when you perceive yourself displaying or demonstrating the specific trait, action, or inaction you perceive in them, displayed and demonstrated by them within yourself and identify where it was and when it was and who you've demonstrated to and who perceived you that way and own all the parts. Then you level the playing field. You're not above or below people. You have now equanimity and objectivity. You're seeing things for the whole, not the parts, and you're re-empowered, and then you've extracted from your misperception a fuel of opportunity to go do something and transcend what you were judging. When you do, you now function from a higher level of performance, a transcendent state instead of an imminently emotional state. And as Warren Buffett says, you can't manage money until you can manage your emotions. Mm. And transcending the emotions that would allow you to manage money, manage leadership, manage relationships, manage health. Every area of life is affected by that judgment split and is healed by the ability to integrate and own all the parts. Because it's one of the things I, 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 I remember learning from you is when the moment we judge something, we, we, we no longer see it's equal and opposite because we, we have a bias. And in order to be able to make the best decisions, we need as much information as possible. And by removing bias, by removing judgment, we actually have access to more information of both the negative and the positive side of any equation to be able to make better decisions. Exactly. We have different layers in our brain. We have the forebrain, uh, the medial prefrontal cortex, the executive center, which allows us to see things objectively. And objectivity means even-minded. And we have the subcortical regions, the amygdala, which is involved in avoiding pain, seeking pleasure, avoiding predator, seeking prey, avoiding with instinct pains, and going with impulse towards pleasures. This, in order to survive out in the wild, that part of our brain um, had what they call a confirmation biases and disconfirmation bias as a, with a positive slant, a positive, um, you might say, bias to make sure we were protected from predators eating us and for preys getting away from us. So we exaggerate with subjective biases all the way to infinity over one and one over infinity with our perceptions when we're highly emotionally charged and we distort our reality. And to the degree that we distort it, we don't see the magnificence of it then it runs our life. There's a hidden order in our existence. And when we actually see things in a perfect balance, we access the hidden order in our apparent chaos. And whoever has the most order is the one that gives the orders. They're the leaders. They're mm. the ones that have the most certainty. But the second we have the subjective bias distorting our reality, we're caught automatically being run from extrinsic sources exogenously instead of actually being intrinsically called towards a purpose in life. And that's why purpose, telos, uh, the calling, the metier, the, the primary objective, the mission in life, which takes us into our executive center, gives us some mastery of our future. Instead of being a victim of history, we become a master of destiny. One of the things that I um, I also gleaned from you was the the how we develop and retain charge, uh, which often happens as a remote of uh, as a response to uh, an emotional bias. So when there is not a complete. Um, perspective of the divinity of both the equal and opposite being universal synchronously at that moment. 
we see things with a level of perspective or judgment and then that then attaches itself to emotion or the emotion then charges it and it traps itself in the body and then lends itself to be repeated? Well, what happens is anytime you have a polarized perception and you skew it to one side with a subjective bias and disconfirmation bias, you automatically have an emotion. An emotion means putting your body in a motion of either attraction by biasing mm-hmm. towards the positive or repulsion, biasing towards the negative. Those emotions are literally impacting. Anything that we perceive is more supportive or positively charged, we activate our parasympathetic nervous system. If we see it more negatively charged, we have our fight or flight uh, sympathetic nervous system. Those nervous system uh, divisions uh, create acetylcholine and norepinephrine. They go down to receptors called cyclic AMP and cyclic GMP to the sympathetic and parasympathetic. They create kinase and phosphatase enzymes that then cause methylation, acetylation of DNA and histones, which then cause an expression of cells to change. Those cells cause a, an expansion, contraction, or a movement to the periphery or into the center. And those are felt on tonofibrils and fibers inside the body and tissue as tensions or compressions. And we actually feel physiologically what we're perceiving in the outer world. So many times we, when we have biochemical imbalances in the brain, which we, the pharmaceutical industry wants you to believe is just imbalanced for no reason, but it's actually imbalanced because of the perceptions we have. Mm. That's why the quality of the life is based on the quality of the questions we ask, which makes us aware of the unconscious, which allows us to see things fully conscious and free ourselves up for the emotional baggage that we carry around that runs our physiology and distracts us from empowering our life. So if someone's carrying around some emotional baggage and they're going, well, you don't understand. This is bad. This was a terrible event. This, you don't understand. You don't have my perspective. Where's the first place that you start to get someone to see the, the, the greater order so that they can become the one who is giving the orders versus the one who seems to be receiving them? Well, our, our amygdala is trying to avoid predator and seek prey. And it wants to blame things on the outside and look for saviors on the outside. That's one of the reasons why religions have done so well and pharmaceutical companies have done so well. They can blame a germ or blame a disease and give some sort of solution on the outside. Instead of having people be accountable, which means to be able to bring a balance sheet into their perceptions, accountability to their perceptions. That's the master. So the majority of people want to be, you know, think that there's a perpetrator out there or they're in some innocent victim of some event. But the real truth is that there's nothing there except a misperception. And I, I've been blessed to work with all types of things. I had a lovely lady who was, was an Israeli leader, and I had on the opposite side of the table a Palestinian leader just recently. Wow, holy wow. And the Israeli leader was uh, charged at the person across the, the, the desk there. And I, um, I was to mediate this. And she said, Dr. Martini, do you believe in absolute evil? And I said, absolutely not. And she said, well, I do. And I said, well, that's probably why you're having difficulty making resolutions. <laughs> And I said, what exactly, let's, let's define the individual. So give me an individual that you think represents that. And she's looking across at the table and she basically doesn't say his name, but I have one and I said, great. Now, what specific trait action in action does this individual display in your perception that you perceive to be dis, you know, resenting, that you resent and you despise that you think is absolute evil? And she said, well, intolerance. I said, and she's not able to see that she's being intolerant at that moment. (laughs) Yeah. And I said, okay, great. So intolerance. Now go to a moment where and when you perceive yourself displaying or demonstrating um, this particular trait that you despise most, which is intolerance. And said, I never do that. I'm always tolerant. And I said, "Uh, right now you're demonstrating intolerance. So let's not 
distort our reality. Let's go and identify them. I made her accountable and I asked her to come up with 38. She came up with 38 examples of where she was intolerant until she was humbled. And when she was humbled, she her judgments calmed a bit. I said, now go to a moment where when this individual that you were judging was intolerant, okay? In that moment, how did it benefit you? It didn't, it was bad. I said, no, you're choosing to see only the downsides. What's the upsides? Everything has two sides. What's the upsides to it? I can't see it. I said, well, that means you stop looking. Let's look again. And we looked and we looked and we found 31 different things over the next two hours. It took two hours to go through this exercise. And 31 different benefits that until she started having tears of gratitude in her eyes for the man sitting across the table. And she goes, she realized that her career was based on that man. Without that man, there's no career. There's no followers. And she all of a sudden realized that the very thing that she loves doing that gives her power and influence comes from a man like him. And then she realized that the drive and determination, her studies, her, her opportunities, the way she raised her children, the impact she's had on society, all came from that. And she broke down in tears. And I said, now, you asked me a question, do I believe in absolute evil? And she said, I don't need to answer, ask that question anymore. <laughs> I said, can you see that you had a subjective bias and a confirmation bias on the things you wanted to see and a disconfirmation bias on the things you didn't want to see? And that's because you've been wounded in the past and you're down in your amygdala and your amygdala's got a bias and you're, you're erring on the false positive perception. And I had to educate her about her perceptions because what she was doing is wanting the other person to abide by her rules in order to make peace. And of course, they were on the other side wanting to do the same thing. And so there was stalemates. Until you can actually see the reflection and have reflective awareness where the seer, the seeing, and the seen are the same, you can't transcend those conflicts. So she calmed down. She was tear jerked by the process. And she had her heart open and realized that this very, very conflict may be based on it. And then she had another fear. She had a fear of what would happen if all of a sudden her other followers didn't understand this and she would lose her followers. And I put her in a conundrum. I said, what are you dedicated to? Having a bunch of followers and lying about what your real mission is or wanting to resolve this conflict? And she had to face the truth about her own conflict. She says, I really realize that I'm now confronted by what I really am really truly trying to do here. I said, so do you want to resolve the conflict and educate your followers on what's possible? Or do you want to be seen with pride in front of your followers and keep perpetuating this illusion? Which would you prefer? Wow. And I'm hoping she chose. Well, I wisely. have another meeting with her when I get back here, <laughs> when I get back to meet with them again. Uh, personally, I found um, the ability to do this has been one of the most, because uh, I'm someone who used to live with debilitating anxiety because of the, the bias in perspective, the, the judgment that was laden, the emotions that were charged and that were derived and triggered as a result of a perspective. And so for me personally, I found this incredibly rewarding, not just from general life, but from alleviating enormous levels of, you know, social anxiety. But one of the things that I've found that has come with this is the requirement for absolute responsibility. You know, on some level, a level of extreme ownership about every single manifestation in your own world and being able to look at every single manifestation as your own world as something that has come either through you, from you, or co-part of you, and then be able to go through this process of balancing it out. But for someone who's like, perhaps early on their journey and they, okay, okay, I've got to ask these questions. I've got to see both sides, but how do you ingrain that next layer of responsibility so that they start seeing it as it's not something that's happening out there. It's something that's actually happening in here. It's not just an intellectual process of ticking boxes and looking at positive, negative and both sides. 
and where I show up like that and how they show up. And how do you ingrain that or integrate responsibility into this process? Well, there was a great Greek philosopher named Epictetus who uh, said, at first, we blame others. Then as we evolve a little further, we start blaming ourselves. Mm. And then when we finally become awake and we realize there's nothing to blame. So we have a tendency to want to hold on to our pride on the inside, therefore resist accountability and hold on to infatuations to avoid the challenges that we inevitably attract to break our addictions to the infatuations. If we're addicted to pleasure, we attract pain. If we're addicted to protection, we attract the violence. Whatever we're addicted to, which keeps us juvenile dependent, stops our growth and makes us, uh, in a sense, weakened. Uh, we attract its opposite to make sure we grow because maximum growth and development occurs at the border of support and challenge. So in order to help somebody do it is to make them fully consciously aware of every moment, frame by frame, of whenever they thought there was an imbalanced perspective, make them aware by asking the right questions to the other side that was present, that they ignored with their bias. So the moment they're elated, where are they depressed? The moment they're infatuated, Where's the other side? Where's the downside? And train them to see both sides of things. Because you don't have objectivity unless you do. Mm. If I walk up to somebody, and I, I do this in my breakthrough experience seminar quite often, <clears throat> I'll see a lovely girl there and sit in the front row maybe, and I'll say, do you mind if I use you as my guinea pig? And they'll go, okay. And I said, if I was to come to you and I said to you, you're always kind, never cruel, always nice, never mean, always positive, never negative, always generous, never stingy, always giving, never taking, always considerate, never inconsiderate, and always peaceful, never wrathful. Would you believe me? She'll pause and she'll go, uh, no. I said, would you agree your intuitive bullshit meter would go off and say, no, that's not exactly true? And she goes, yeah. If I came to you and I said that you're always mean, you're never nice, you're always cruel, you're never kind, you're always taking, you're never giving, you're always stingy, never generous, always wrathful, never peaceful, always inconsiderate, never considerate, never always negative, never positive, would you believe me? She goes, no. I said, your bullshit meter go off again? She goes, yeah. Are you immediately thinking of moments where you were the opposite of what I just said? Yeah. I said, if I went to you right now and I said, sometimes you're kind, sometimes you're cruel, sometimes you're nice, sometimes you're mean, sometimes you're positive, sometimes you're negative, sometimes you're peaceful, sometimes you're wrathful, et cetera, would you believe me? She goes, yeah. I said, a person can never have certainty as long as they skew their perceptions to one side. Their intuition's always trying to whisper the other side to them, but sometimes they're too stubborn to listen to what their intuition's guiding them to do, to liberate them from the emotional baggage so they can live present and purposeful and objective in their executive center as a leader. So mastering that skill is simply just asking the right questions and holding them accountable on a moment-to-moment -moment basis to see the hidden order in their chaos. There seems to be a very strong underlying currency of consciousness that is required to live like this on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. How did you or how do you with individuals help propagate the consciousness, the self-awareness, the self-consciousness that's required to be able to have this as a default mechanism, a default mode network within the brain? Because for some people I've observed this even through your own work, is they can come into an event and when they're in the event and someone's instructing them, they can go through that process, they can have the realizations, they can experience the, the divinity and the gratitude, but then the moment they leave there, they, their default mode network kicks back in again and they find it very difficult to you know, rationalize or departmentalize the whole process. So what was your journey to consciousness that enabled you to see this in all of its glory, but more in the moment-to-moment -moment basis. And where I'm heading with this is, you know, hindsight's a beautiful thing, right? And I've heard, I learned this from you. 
how do you take hindsight from being something that happens two years from now to something that actually literally happens in the moment to the point where it actually doesn't exist because it's not required? Well, <clears throat> there's the wisdom of the ages with the aging process by having a period of time between the two, pole, two poles of a perception. Or there's the wisdom of the ages without the aging process by seeing it now, seeing both sides now. That's wisdom. Wisdom is the instantaneous recognition that crisis has blessing and the two sides are always present because they're entangled. Just like in quantum entanglement, particle and nanoparticle are inseparable even though they could be thousands of miles away. They're still inseparable and they function as a unit. Every event, even though it seems to be one-sided, always has its opposite pole to balance it. There's in the brain, in Neuron Magazine, March 2016, Science Art basically published it, that showed that, that in the brain there's never memory without anti-memory. And they're there electronically to poise the brain Otherwise, there's actually brain noise and damage to the brain and causes schizophrenia, demyelinizations. So our, our brain automatically has the information there, but we're choosing not to see it. So it's the training. It's like any training, just like the martial arts of, uh, you know, Bruce Lee. He practiced and practiced and performed and Michael Jackson, same thing, and Michael Jordan, the same thing. They sat and practiced and practiced and practiced. I, I think that when people come up to you and say, oh, you're gifted, it's not really true. It's like Michelangelo when they asked him how he did the, the great paintings. If you saw how much work I put into it, you wouldn't think it's so great. The real truth is it takes the mastery and the work of doing it and practicing it. You, you know, the difference between an amateur and a professional is one's practicing in between the performance, one's practicing at their performance. It's the willingness to have a purpose for doing so. If you really saw the significance of how mastery could help your life in the seven areas of life, and you had it high enough on your values that there was nothing else more important, you would master it. But if you have other things that are more important, immediate gratifying pleasures that you seek or whatever, instead of mastery, then you won't myelinate that higher advanced part of the brain. The lower brain has larger diamond neurons that fire faster for emergencies uh, in case of predator and prey. The higher part of the brain is, has more refined and smaller neurons, but they become myelinated and used and speed up their conduction if they're used. But if you don't fill your day with high priority actions that inspire you, your day will fill up with low priority distractions that don't. If you don't fill your day with absolute mastery of seeing both sides of things, your brain will automatically go into subjective bias. It's simply a training process. And it's like any other skill. There's no human being that can't master it. They just have to have a high enough value on mastering it. Is there a practice below the practice? And I guess what I'm referring to here is medita like mindfulness, meditation. Because um, to me, one of the things that I've found to be supremely helpful with my process, with my journey, with my ability to be able to do this you know, from a moment-to-moment -moment basis is by practicing and fostering and propagating a, a level of consciousness through practice. You know, Meditation every single day, twice a day, or whatever the practice is. Is meditation something that you think plays an important role or a key role in this process? I got introduced or to meditation, alpha meditation in 1972. Right. I then studied a variety of forms of meditation. In 1975, I studied TM meditation with Maharishi. I had many different Indian gurus that I came across over the years that taught different forms of meditation. I learned a little of everything that I could. I studied the physiology of what the mind does, the breathing mechanisms. They all have a place. As long as you're using it for integration and not escape. Because some people, and I've seen it at many locations that I've lectured at, where people are going there as a meditation to escape the world instead of to find the magnificence inside mm. the world. So what, sometimes we go, oh, I'm stressed, I need to go meditate. Instead of actually meditating and finding the hidden mm. order in what you thought was stress. Yeah. There's only two forms of stress. Everything that anybody has that is ever perceived as stressful boils to two forms. The perception of loss of that which you seek and the perception of gain of that which you're trying to avoid. 
every single stress you will ever face in your life boils to those two down in the amygdala. So if you know how to see with the unconscious and ask the right questions inside your mind during a meditation, you can actually poise those imbalances that are poisoned. And you can actually neutralize that, bring your mind into full consciousness, mindfulness, and no longer be needing to avoid something or seek something. The, the two attachments of the Buddha. The Buddha says the desire for that which is unavailable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. So as long as we're trying to get something for nothing or trying to get rid of something, we, um, we're missing out on the magnificence of what each of those are trying to pair off as a pair at the same time trying to teach us. Everything is trying to, our physiology, psychology, sociology, even our theology is attempting to get us into the poised, authentic state where we're integrated, where we actually have fullness and therefore meditation used that way is very profound. Is it also fair to assume that the more you engage in this type of a, a way of life, that the more meditation enables you to do what it was there designed for in the first place? Yes. Because eventually you realize that when you see Because meditation things, wasn't really designed to relieve stress, was it? No. <laughs> no, it was, it was to become awakened to mm. the hidden order in the apparent chaos. I, I'm not, uh, I, I see many people escaping. The animal agnostic mind is not really accessing true meditation. It's mm. trying to escape things. It's, it's used as a bliss searching. But not, I, don't, I don't look for ecstasy or bliss. That's, a, that's a, the lowest level of, of morality, the lowest level of religiosity, the lowest level of, of consciousness is the avoidance and the seeking mechanism. Mm. The highest level is the poised realization there's nothing to avoid or seek. There's something to honor. And so, because we think there's something missing and we think there's something about to happen and we're, we're basically automatons reacting to misperceptions from the external world. The second we realize that there's always a pair of opposites, frame by frame in our life, which we could call love. John Archibald Wheeler, who believed in, in participatory universe, believed that the love was all there was. That's all there was. Everything is actually just a frame by frame experience of love at all scales of existence for eternity for human beings. But we are just not at that level of awareness to see it. We're polarized by bias. We're, We're polarized, polarized by, by our mind. animal mind, yeah. which is trying to avoid predators and seeking prey mm. instead of being a human being. And a human being is something more profound. A human being is capable of doing something that's transcendent to that. We have the ability to find meaning, as Viktor Frankl says, and transcend even the will to power or the will for pleasure and to be able to have something that we see and, and actually see in a state of grace. We have that accessibility. So it's all about the questions we ask in life and training people on how to ask those questions is my job. You're a pretty work dude um, and it's clear that you've done an enormous amount of work internally, externally. You've built knowledge, you've also developed and refined your own knowledge. But I'm also curious as to um, other things that have happened in your life that have perhaps awoke, awoken you to other uh, other perceptions that have been quite um, significant. What's your experience with psychedelics? When I was a teenager, um, I did psychedelics. I was 13 when I first took my first hit of acid. That was back in, I guess that was 67. So I did that. Um, I did quite a bit of that when I was a young boy. Uh, I did also mushrooms and tried different psychedelics um, when I was living in Hawaii. That was sort of a normal way of life. Over did you there. ever try DMT? Uh, they didn't really have thing called DMT. Yeah, they, right. They, they sold at that time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, one day I was sitting on the beach at Haleiwa, uh, sort of on the north northwest shore there in Oahu. 
and I was sitting there with a buddy named Jimmy, and we were stoned. And there's a little dog named Root Dog that was sitting there rooting in the ground there. And we were watching this dog and giggling. And we had just come in from surfing, and so it was about 10 o'clock in the morning or 10.30. And um, all of a sudden, we looked over the bluff towards the beach, and we saw this guy with his legs up in the sky. And we didn't see his, that he was actually doing a headstand, but it, all we could see is from about his shoulders up. And it looked like a guy had fallen from the sky and hit the ground. Like we, an arrow. Like an arrow. When we, when, we were, when we were looking up in the sky, trying to find out where did this guy come from, you know? We were kind of in an altered state. And uh, we just looked at that and we thought, we couldn't believe it. You know, go, wow, that must have hurt, you know? And thinking, how that, how that guy endure that? He just, boom, stuck right into the sand. And then all of a sudden, his legs came down and he all of a sudden reversed and he stood up. And when he stood up, we're watching this and we're going, whoa, this guy's alive, he made it. <laughs> and, and then um, he, when he came back up and stood up, he looked directly at us and walked directly to us. And this is about 100 yards away, not quite 100, no, 50, 60 yards away maybe. And he comes over to us and he sits right next to us. And we're all stoned, and you know when you're stoned, if you put your hand on the side of your face where you can't see him, he can't see you in your mind. <laughs> And uh, he looked at us and he just stared at us. He said, you guys are high, man? And go, yeah, we're high. And he goes, really high? And go, yeah, we're really high, man. And he goes, would you like to get even higher? And I go, we're like, well, yeah, man. He says, then learn how to meditate. Ooh. And I said to myself, what the hell's that? Yeah, right. And uh, he introduced me to meditation at that point. And it was shortly after that that I nearly died. And then I met Paul Bragg and he introduced me to meditation. Mm. I've never done a drug. I've not had one drug, not one aspirin, not one antibiotic, not one drug in my body since that day. Mm. Wow. So I, I don't, when, when I learned what I was capable of doing with my mind consciously, I transcended the need for external needs. Mm. I'm not saying that they didn't have a place. They were a journey. They expanded my awareness to what was possible in my mind. But I have absolutely no desire for that today because I, I realize that I have the power to do all of that. Every single thing that I was able to access, I can do consciously now. Do you think psychedelics play a role in the third wave of the awakening? Because they're saying that psychedelics are now making a resurgence, not just from um, a consciousness perspective and an awakening perspective, but also from a performance perspective as well. Microdosing is becoming quite popular. Well, the gentleman that's really initiated as a guy named David Nutt is at the Imperial College in London. I've had time to spend time with him. We've had conversations. We met on a plane, actually, and he was going to help me with a research project on my method, on, its, on what it can do to access these states. But he is very much uh, a promoter of, of that if it's used wisely. Mm -hmm. I can't guarantee that everybody's using it wisely. Yeah. I can't guarantee that you can always govern and control exactly what you're going to experience. And I can't guarantee that you can't get caught in some manic pursuits of euphorias and then mm. get bipolarized from that. But if used wisely, I think, and, and understood what it's doing, I think that that could have a place. But again, I've been able to access each of those states without having to take something to mm. do it. So now that I know what I can do in my own mind to access those regions of the brain, um, I, I have not found a need for it myself. But I think that many people are going through that experience and they'll experience it and they'll learn from it and they'll, they'll realize what it's capable of doing. But you will also have some vulnerabilities because 
sometimes it's not necessarily, you don't really know what you're about to experience. Yeah. Depends on the setting. Yeah. I had a gentleman that uh, went for a ayahuasca journey in Peru and went down the river and, and found himself uh, vomiting on the edge and falling into the river and got bit by a bunch of piranhas. And then he ended up having nightmares and this whole experience was <laughs> oh, not, wow. not so fun. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, that's so it, not you, fun. you, you want to make sure you're in a governed environment where there's there's a, a place for your mind to mm. not be distracted because you can be you can be psychiatrically split by that also yeah right because I, I found it quite interesting as a as a tool to introduce to altered states yes uh, and then i discovered holotropic breathing yeah and i started using holotropic breathing and i and i couldn't refine it until one day i got my technique down then all of a sudden i was like oh my god holotropic I, breathing can bring some some breathing techniques consistent holotropic breathing or consistent uh breathing in certain gradations ha- it can govern certain parts of the brain mm. so there's ways of doing it without having to take the drug and I, and because what they are is analogs inside our normal chemistry mm. and we have access to changing those chemistries i'd rather find out what is the psychological perspectives that activate the different chemistries and to be able to have conscious manneries you know mass mastery of that personally mm. that's what i've been studying i've been studying the brain for over 45 years and um, i'm more interested in knowing how a perception, a breathing technique, um, a ratio of perception, what are the transmitters that are being turned on and turned off and learn how to do it consciously. Yeah, no, I think I think that the, the shamanistic animistic stages of religiosity uh, was an early stage and it helped in, in increase linguistics, it helped us in expand what's possible, but we can also get trapped in a bipolarized state if it's not been governed properly. Agreed. Purpose. You talk a lot about purpose uh, and how when people aren't on purpose, at the moment when you are full of purpose, you will fill your life full of purposeful and meaningful things that will inspire you and lift you up and give you the energy that's required. Um, I find it fascinating that once I learnt and I tapped into purpose, motivation. I've never, I've never had to read another motivational book again. People say to me, "How do you like? What do you do to get motivated?" Like I, I fucking wake up. It's like once it's instilled within you, there is no longer this external uh, requirement for you to be fed, proked, prodded, pressed, supplemented in order to feel that way. But one of the things I find really interesting is most people go, well, so how do I do it? Well, so, well you've got to connect with something greater than yourself. Like, what is your reason for being here? Purpose. And you, you are fundamental as one of those teachers that helped me really connect with that. But when you're working with someone who's like, going, dude, I don't know what I'm here to do. My life is full with stuff that is unmeaningful and I am unmotivated and I am unfulfilled. Where's the best place to start to help someone really identify and connect with, well, why am I here? Is there greater meaning than just my fucking current existence? Well, every individual, regardless of gender, age or culture, lives moment by moment with a set of priorities or values things that are most important to least important in their life. I have a high value in research and teaching, traveling. I have a low value in cooking and driving. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't cooked since I was 24 and haven't driven in 29 and a half years. Yeah, right. So I don't do, I learned a long time ago, don't do low priority things or you'll devalue yourself. Stick to the things that are most inspiring if you want an inspiring life mm. and delegate the rest, which gives you the accountability of going out and doing something that serves people to earn the income to delegate. So if you're not living by the if, highest priority. If you've just listened to that, rewind that and listen to that again. Sorry, keep going. Um, if you're not filling your day with the highest priority actions that really call you, inspire you, your life is going to fill up with low priority distractions as a feedback mechanism to self-depreciate you, to associate pain with things that aren't important to you, to try to guide you back to what is. So self-depreciation and negative thoughts and fears and things are not enemies. They're feedback mechanisms guiding us to what's true for us. 
So whatever's highest on our value, we're spontaneously inspired from within. That's our calling. Our highest value is our purpose. Our purpose is the most effective and efficient pathway to fulfill the greatest amount of voids with the greatest amount of values. And the voids are all the disowned parts because of our prides and shames and judgments of the past that are stored in the subconscious mind that are trying to vie for attention with our intuition back into our purpose. So the second we live by our highest value, we automatically have the calling, the metier, the primary objective, the end in mind, the most meaningful pursuit, most inspiring pursuit we have. And we don't need motivation again. I don't need motivation to get up and do research and, and, and teach and do what I love doing. I don't, I'm not a motivational speaker. You're not a known motivational speaker. The motivational speaker uses rhetorical persuasion to get people to do things with pleasures and pain stacking to get them to do something they don't want to do to try to sell what they want to sell. A real inspiring teacher, in my opinion, is somebody who is helping people access their own highest values so they can set sail as captain of their ship and master their fate according to their own calling to make a real difference because you can't make a difference subordinating and living in the shadows of other people in conformity. You can only do it by standing strong, independent, and creating an original idea that serves people by being original in your thinking. And that comes from living authentically according to your own unique values that are fingerprint specific. So I'm getting the sense intuition and purpose are intrinsically linked. Intuition is trying to make you conscious, fully conscious of the con- unconscious at the same time of the conscious. So if I'm infatuated with somebody, my intuition is trying to point out the downsides. If I'm resentful to somebody, it's trying to point out the upsides. So I can see both sides so I can love the person. Because mm. if I can't love them, I'm not loving me and I'm distracted by those emotions of pride, shame, infatuation, resentment. Those are the impulsors and instinctors that are distracting. All distractions are impulses or instincts that are trying to seek or avoid something that are elusive. So the second you intuitively listen to the unconscious and make it fully conscious, you're liberated from the bondage of those emotions, which are the animal nature. You're liberated from the, the lower flame, you might say, of the kundalini of the Indian mystic and liberated into a moksha or liberation or satori of the mind. So for people whose world is so noisy that they find it difficult to be able to interpret what their intuition is telling them, to connect with something greater than what they are right now, what what are the best questions that you can ask someone to help them identify, connect, reinvigorate, or just know what they're here to do? What, how do you connect people with their purpose? What are some of the best questions that you Well, you've the heard? number one reason that people are unclear about it is because they compare themselves to others. They put them mm. on pedestals. They inject the values of others into their mm. life. They cloud the clarity of their own calling. And then they say to themselves, I don't know what my purpose is. But what it is, is they're comparing their actions to other people. And whenever you compare your actions to other people's values, you're gonna think you're making mistakes and you're gonna think you're sabotaging and you can't stay focused and you're, what's wrong with you and you're self-depreciate, which are all symptoms to let you know you're not being yourself, you're trying to live in on somebody else's shadow and, and not standing on their shoulders. So it's our comparison to other people that lead this. So the question to do is whatever we see in others, look within it and find it within. The hero and the villain, at the level of the soul, nothing's missing inside us. At the mm. level of our senses, things appear to be missing. We're too proud or too ashamed to, to admit we have those. When we finally embrace that whatever we see around us is us, and we finally own our hero and villain, own our saint and sinner, own our virtue and vice, and become a fully functioning individual without trying to get rid of half of yourself to love yourself, you now are able to be clear in mission. Do you think we live in some kind of elaborate... Uh, energetic illusion that has been governed by a higher intelligence uh, that is 
directed independently by a cluster of thousands of galactic souls that are giving us this perception that what we're experiencing right now in reality, where in, in truth it's just an incredibly sophisticated illusion. You mean is this a simulator, as Elon Musk might say? Well, it's not so much the simulation theory. We're not. I'm not asking are we hurtling through space right now, looking to recolonize another fucking galaxy or planet, and we're currently in some form of hyper suspension. No, I'm genuinely curious at an energetic level because I have had some transcendental experiences through holotropic breathing, through DMT, through ayahuasca, through other forms of you know conscious altering mechanisms that have made me really question you know the the fundamentals of reality and go. Oh, I'm not sure this is so real. And it's not a bad thing. I actually see it as something that's quite positive, you know, because I had this this moment when I perfected my holotropic breathing technique where all of a sudden I felt this back pressure in my compression of breathing. And then all of a sudden I was like, whoo, and I had this awakening come through me and I had this incredible sense of awareness that you are just create your 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 soul is coming through this being and manifesting things that is just fun for your soul and in that moment i was just like whoa like everything was vibrating nothing was real everything was fluid in nature i was just like and i wasn't on anything i was just like wow is this real or is this just a really sophisticated elaborate quantum mechanical illusion that has nothing to do with science or anything it's just a pure expression of consciousness every time Every weekend, 43 weekends out of the year, I do a program called The Breakthrough Experience. Mm. You, you, you participate Very in familiar. It. And uh, I've done it 1,067 times now. And it, it is uh, in there, one of the things that I help people see, usually on Saturday night after they've done the method throughout the afternoon, they all of a sudden reach a state of transcendence, which means that they're, they stopped the noise in the brain they, the judgment had been transcended on some person that they resented the most. And all of a sudden they reach a point where they just have tears come out of their eyes. They reach a state what some people call grace. They feel love, deep love for the person that they had resented. And they, we pick somebody out of the room to represent a surrogate for that. And they communicate, and sometimes they can't even speak, they're in such grace. But they'll communicate their appreciation and love for this person. While they do it, their mind perceives not the person sitting in the chair, but the person they did the exercise on. And that person could even be passed away 10 years, but they'll be sitting there looking and seeing this person there. They'll also notice that there's no room. There's nobody else in the room, except the being that they're actually loving. And then they realize that their mind in their normal daily activity is elusive. Even though it's empirical to the scientists, it's actually elusive and it's not really the whole picture. And then they realize that yes, this was just a reality but not the whole picture. And when they start to love somebody and they transcend it, regardless of space and time, it's because they could be a thousand miles away and you'll feel they're in present, or they could be dead 10 years and they feel that they're present with them. Then you realize that in a state of grace, a state of perfect equanimity, that we have access to a completely broader, more magnificent uh, actuality, what's actually there, not just a local reality that we happen to be momentarily living in as a lesson for transcending our judgments. Mm -hmm. So that I think there is something that's greater. Um, Leibniz in his discourse on metaphysics in the first, first uh, portion of his book said that there was a divine perfection, a divine beauty, a divine love, a divine order, a divine magnificence in the universe that few people ever, got, ever get to know. But those that do and those that have a glimpse, their lives are changed forever. Mm. I set out since I was 18 to find a science to help do that, to develop that science to help people see that. But I do believe that there's something that is definitely more transcendent than our day-to-day -day lives. But most people are caught in their 
impulses and instincts and survival mechanism instead of a self-actualized thrival mechanism and realizing we have a vast contribution to make on the planet. I always say that the magnitude of space and time in our innermost dominant thought will determine the level of conscious evolution we've attained. And if we have a vast infinity of awareness, uh, it's impossible to be judging. The overview effect of going into space makes us look down and realize the trivialness of what's going on down below and all the border disputes and all the changes and all the judgments we have down there have no meaning. So the broader we are in our conscious awareness, the less we have time for judgment, the less we disown parts, the more we feel whole and the more we have actualized, self-actualized and spiritual actualized what's possible for a human consciousness. When you become fully self-actualized, like what do you, you know, we, we hear about um, the yogis talking about enlightenment. What, what do you think is the greatest form of transcendence? Like what, what does that look like? Well, I don't, I don't want to say that there's ever a full enlightenment. I think it's a relative enlightenment. Mm. I use the analogy because when I see gurus that say they're all enlightened, I, I walk up to them and I said, can you give me an answer of whether I'm going to pass gas or I'm going to stand here without it? And they'll go, I don't know. And I said, well, then you're not fully enlightened. I'm joking with them. See, what I, I think Einstein said it beautifully when he said that we live with holy curiosity. It's wiser to live with holy curiosity than to think you've got it lightened. So I think of it this way. Imagine a, a, the earth spinning around. Now, it's about 8,000 miles in radius, and it's about 24,000 miles in, in circumference, right? And so if you look at that, um, the little guru that's sitting in the lotus position going around like a hamster wheel around a hamster cage, uh, going around and saying, I'm enlightened, I'm enlightened, I'm enlightened. If you see that, you realize he's actually trapped on a planet and he's very stuck in a little domain. If he goes out too far, he'll explode. If he goes in too far, he'll implode. And he lives in a very limited thing with his visual, his auditory, his smell. He's a very finite little world. Then imagine from the sun looking back at the earth, 93 million miles away, one astronomical unit, you can't even see the earth. So from the sun's perspective, that little guy on the planet's not visible. So his awareness is an infinitesimal. Then if you go to 28,000 you know, light years away, uh, and that's 86,400 seconds a day times 365 and a quarter days. And then you multiply that times 28,000. And that tells you how long it takes to get to the Milky Way at the speed of light. And you go there and you, you sit there and you can't even see through the gas and dust and the cosmic hydrogen. You can't even see the solar system, let alone the little planet. And so the person that's going, I'm enlightened, I'm enlightened, I'm enlightened is, is, is an infinitesimal nothingness. Then if you look at the Lanikea supercluster that our particular Milky Way is an infinitesimal speck to, to the center of the great attractor in the middle of that, we don't even exist. We're not even visible in our Milky Way. So when somebody says they have a universal awareness, I say, that's delusional, that's an exaggerated uh, pride. It's wiser to live with holy curiosity and continually dedicate and focus your attention on seeing what you can learn today. Mm. Something um, that I've also taken with me from you is uh, the law of thermodynamics. It's not your law, but it was something that was highlighted by you in a really practical way where energy isn't created or destroyed. It's just constantly changing form. And I know some philosophers have gone on to say by the thought that would be actually controlling it. Um, where I found this incredibly helpful was when you know we experienced the perception of loss. Because um, I know one of the things that you do is you've dealt with a lot of people who have lost loved ones and they've been experiencing incredible levels of grief, uh, yet you've been able to bring them to states of complete gratitude with tears and grace you know, pouring through them to be able to see that the person hasn't actually left, they've just changed form. How do you explain that to someone? <laughs> In a nutshell. That, that particular method, I've done 3,571 deaths now. 
Right. And at Keio University in Tokyo, they're doing a study on it. They've done two pilots now on it, and they're doing a write-up study on it right now because they, they didn't know how this could be done. They didn't believe it was possible, and they've seen it now live. I've used it at the Christchurch uh, earthquake. I've done it at a tsunami in, in Japan and Ishtamaki. We did it recently at the earthquake in Japan again. Uh, they bring us in to help uh, resolve some of the griefs by people. What happens is grief is a perception uh, due to perceptions of loss of that which you're infatuated with or the perceptions of gain of that which you are resenting. So when people talk about their grief and you ask them, what are you grieving? They will always make a list of the things that they admired about the person that they miss. They will never tell you the things they despised that they miss. Because you, dis- you don't have a grief over the loss of things you despise, you have relief. And relief and grief are entangled poles of one magnet inside the mind that makes up love. So anytime you're infatuated with somebody, you're going to grieve their loss. When America was celebrating the loss of Saddam Hussein, the people that loved Saddam Hussein were grieving over in Iraq. So the, if we resent him, that we're gonna be relieved, celebrating. If we're uh, grieving him, it's because we had an infatuation with what he was and we're missing the parts we admired. So it's purely a ratio of perceptions that cause these, these responses. That's why I don't pay much attention to them because I know they're just incomplete awarenesses. So what I do is I make them aware of the unconscious and find out uh, what is the downside of the traits that they admired and level the playing field. And when they do, the grief goes. And I show them that whatever the trait was that the person had and displayed when they die, it gets dispersed in a variety of other people. There's a conservation of the traits. And at first they go, what what do you mean? And I make them accountable. I say, okay, the moment your mother passed six weeks ago, uh, what is the trait that you miss? What's the behavior or the action or inaction that she displayed and demonstrated that you admired that you now miss? Well, I miss her cuddles or her guidance or her hugs or a sense of humor, they'll usually say. And I'll say, okay, now the moment she passed, from that moment till today, one or many, male or female, close or distant, self or other, who is now displaying those traits? And we go through and do a quantitative analysis of where it is and, and people that have increased it or showed up back in their life that's now demonstrating it. And to their surprise and to their amazement, it's not missing. It's just dispersed from one to many. The law of the one to many again. And at death, it goes from one to many. At birth, it goes from many to one. And so what happens is, the moment they actually realize that, they go, oh, I'm not missing all those traits. They're actually in a form. And what's interesting, those forms that are there are more in line with their highest values than the previous form, which makes them realize that they're consciously participating in that transformation. And then once I do is I go and qualitatively balance it by finding the drawbacks of the thing they were infatuated with and the benefits of the new form. And once those are equilibrated, there's no way a person can have grief. I guarantee it, money back guarantee it. It's never failed once and since 1984 since I developed the method. And it blows people's minds when they see it. Yeah, it is quite profound. I've seen you demonstrate it live on stage. Um, wow. Have you ever had the opportunity to um, integrate this within yourself with the loss of someone who was, because I'm going to assume there's proximities of loss, right? You know, if it's one thing to lose perhaps a, a, a great grandmother that you maybe, you know, saw once every 12 months at Christmas time versus, you know, your, your mum who perhaps you've been a little bit, um, you know, disentangled from for some time versus losing, you know, like a child at the age of seven or eight or, or 12 or 13 or a, or a partner like on the, on the, uh, the day after a wedding or something like that. Have you experienced within yourself that this process requires the level of pr- the level of the level of application of this process really will be determined by the proximity of that connection? Well, it's not the proximity necessarily, although you could 
sort of say proximity. It's it's the degree of infatuation. That's yeah, all. okay. So if you're, let, let's give an example, because yeah, the answer is yes. When my wife passed away 15, 14 and a half years ago, I got the opportunity to use the method immediately. Did you, ex- did you and I guess this is where my question is going, because um, uh, for those people who don't know, Athena Starwoman was your, was your wife. Yes. Um, you guys were an incredible power couple uh, of the cosmic order. But when she passed, did you find yourself actually experiencing grief that required you to use your own tools? I didn't require that. I, I did it as it was going. Right. As she, we found out in October that she was, she had cancer and they said that she's probably got about two months to live. Got it. So what I did is I used the tool as it was going, as I noticed certain behaviors declining. Right. So I did 139 different things because I was curious uh, as a research too, um, what exactly happened? Because I didn't, I don't have somebody dying in my, this close. Yeah, I understood. So I, I was doing that as it was doing. And as it was fading, I was watching who was emerging and what were the benefits and drawbacks and was balancing it out. Because I wanted to make sure that I loved her, not infatuated with her. Hmm. I don't want to put people on pedestals or put, uh, pits. I want them in my heart. Because if you love somebody, you'll feel their presence. If you infatuate them, you're going to feel the grief of their loss. If you resent them, you're going to feel relief over their loss. So I wanted them to love them so I could feel her presence. And that was the thing. So I was doing it as I went, and so by the time she actually passed, I pretty well cleared most of those things. And then the few that I had when she actually passed were cleared. So I did mm. not have big grief. Four days after she passed, uh, Woman's Weekly magazine, there was a lovely lady that came to interview me about the whole thing. And I had to help her go through the method in order to finish the actual interview. Because <laughs> she was grieving she more was than grieving you. more than I was. Well, she yeah. told me, well, how are you doing this? I said, because I love Athena. I didn't infatuate with Athena. Yeah. I know more things about Athena than not some of her friends that infatuated with them. Yeah. And she was, uh, she, she actually had more, um, it was amazing actually, because when I asked her, when she was actually about to be told that she, you know, she's got two months to live, I said, so how do you want me to respond? Would you like us to go for a second opinion, third opinion? Would you like, what would you love to do? And she said, I just want you to love me the way you've always loved me, nothing more. Mm. And I went, wow. And I said, okay. She did not have a big reaction to that, which I thought was amazing. And I said, okay. She's embraced what's this reality. She's not going to fight it. The doctor said, if, even if you tried some things, it's probably not going to do anything except cause more aggravation on the de- departure. And uh, then about six weeks before she passed, we held hands. I remember the medical doctor was there. We held hands. And she said to me, we just held hands. It was one of those tear-jerking moments. It wasn't a sorrow. It was a gratitude for all the things we had gotten to do. Mm. She said, you know, we've climbed the Himalayas. We've climbed the Andes. We've climbed the Rockies. We've climbed the Alps. We've been to, with royalty. We've, we've lived on a most, most amazing yacht. We've had penthouses. We've met with leaders. We've done movies together. We've, done, we've had an amazing life. Thank you for being my star man. And I said, well, thank you for being my star woman. And she said, it's time for you to now find you another new young star girl because your star woman's about to go on. And it was one of those moments you just embraced each other. It was a very loving moment. Mm. And, uh, and then she just was able to handle that. I mean, sure, she had some moments where she was attached to things and having difficulty, but it was a great opportunity for us both to see what love was about. Wow. 
John, I can say um, wholeheartedly, I absolutely love you with my whole heart. I'm eternally grateful for all of the lessons, um, the awarenesses, the gifts, um, the impact that you've had on my life. And you'll never fully be able to truly know what it is that I'm saying right now, but I'm sure on some level you feel it. But I would love to pay it forward in some way. You've written so many books. Uh, I wouldn't know where to start, but if someone was wanting to find out more, you've also got the breakthrough experience. You've got the Imperience experience. Are you still running Imperience? Oh, yeah. Uh, you've got also- There's 10 of those. <laughs> uh, like nothing else. But it, for someone who's wanting to explore more of your work, where's the best place to start? All they have to do is go to the website, drdmartini.com, and um, just let their conscious uh, go for a, a ride because- I think there's all kinds of things there. There's all types of interviews. There's thousands of interviews. There's events. There's products. There's YouTubes. There's. I think a person could stay on there and be educated for probably eternity. <laughs> <laughs> One last question. What do you want to be remembered for? Um, I really believe that there's a, a, a magnificence in the universe that few people actually get to see. Mm. And I wanted to make a contribution and develop a methodology to help people see it. Wow. And, I, and that's what I'm trying to do with breakthrough experience. The breakthrough experience is not just another rah rah kind of thing. It's it's a it's my life's work trying to help people get a glimpse of the magnificence of who they are and the universe that they're in. Mm. And and as Leibniz said, those that do their lives are changed forever. I don't want people to be motivated, just like you said. You're mm. not motivated. You're inspired from within. You're intrinsically called. I want people to access that. Because when the why is big enough, the house take care of themselves. The rest mm. of the stuff falls into place. I want them to be able to say at the end of their life, you know, when you ask the question, did you do everything you could with everything you were given? You want them to say, I friggin' did it. Mm. Well, I'd say you've, you've succeeded in your life's purpose. Now it's just a matter of, I guess, scale. Um, and for those people who are listening, absolutely, absolutely highly encourage the breakthrough experience. I think I've done it three times now. And even just sitting here talking to you now, I'm like, shit, I think it's time for a tune-up. <laughs> it keeps evolving. I have no doubt, because you obviously keep evolving. You're organic in nature. Uh, but John, thank you so much for coming to Unstoppable. Really appreciate it. For those people who want to find out more, uh, drdmartini.com, Breakthrough Experience, and yeah, everything else on there. Thank you so much for your time, thank John. Thank you for the interview. Lovely. Pleasure. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And do me a favor, don't forget to drop me a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear what you think. I love reading what you guys have to say and your reviews. Make sure we keep creating killer content just like this. If you want to stay up to date with me and all my movements, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com. And also check us out on social media at Kerwin Ray.